MSW Media. Today, Donald Trump pardoned Rod Blagojevich and other white-collar criminals. Days earlier, Bill Barr personally intervened in the sentencing of Roger Stone. What does this mean for the rule of law? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, who's literally in her last month of campaigning. So today we're going to get right to our episode, and we've got a couple of fantastic guests. But first, I want to recognize our patrons who brought you this episode. With special thanks to Michelle Dew, Eric DeWurst, Edie, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, and an anonymous patron. You can become a patron, too, at our website, ontopicpodcast.com, all one word. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So today we're going to be talking about the threat to the rule of law that is posed by Trump and his administration, particularly Bill Barr. And we've got two great guests. So let's bring in our first guest. Congressman Mike Quigley is a congressman uh, in Illinois, representing the Illinois 5th District. He happens to be my congressman. He's a member of the House Intelligence Committee. He was actually the person that Roger Stone lied to uh, when he uh, testified before Congress. Uh, He's also uh, got pretty strong opinions about Rod Blagojevich, uh, given that he has spent many years in Illinois politics. So I think he's a great guest for this topic. Thanks for joining us again, Congressman Quigley. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Lots to talk about. (laughs) Indeed. And and I will say that I didn't expect when we first uh, decided to record this episode that we were going to be talking about the commutation of the sentence of Rod Blagojevich. Uh, He's someone who was a figure looming over Illinois politics, a symbol of corruption in Illinois. I know he's somebody I met and interacted with. I, my, my former office prosecuted uh, Governor Blagojevich. I was in the courtroom uh, when he was being uh, examined and uh, had an opportunity to interact with him many times. I, I'm curious what your impression was of, of uh, Governor Blagojevich. You know, personally, he was probably one of the best uh, day-to-day candidate-type politicians I've ever seen. Uh, I've never seen anyone work a room so effectively. Uh, such a great candidate who uh, obviously, um, you know, the true Rob Bogoyevich came out. He is where he belongs, or he was where he belongs, and uh, it was another sad chapter in Illinois politics. So, you know, I don't know how many people knew what was going on behind the scenes, but uh, what well, was two governors in a row that uh, Illinois, Republican and Democrat, Illinois faced this corruption, uh, a real loss of the public's trust. And, you know, and for me, when people ask about this, you know, it, it, corruption costs money, and that's very important. But I think what's far worse is the corruption creates a loss of the public's trust. And it's 
it's hard to put a value on that. We have tough decisions we have to make every day as aldermen, county commissioners, state reps, state senators, congressmen. Uh, and at the very least, while a constituent may agree or disagree with what you do, uh, the fact that they question it because they're always wondering what your motivation is makes this job so much more difficult and I think really hurts the overall process. Yeah, you know, Judge Zagel, who um, sentenced Rob Bogoyevich, said at the time that he thought that the crime was particularly serious because it was a violation of the public trust. It was exactly what you said. You know, he said it was uh, next to the president, uh, a a corruption by the governor was the most serious offense that he could think of, given the harm it causes and public confidence in their government. And you know, when you have the governor of the state of Illinois being recorded, you know, saying, you know, about a, a Senate seat, this thing is effing golden. I mean, using he was using the actual swear words. He wanted some, you know, I'm not going to give it up for effing nothing, you know, shaking down a children's hospital, uh, th- things like that. I mean, it, it's my former boss, Pat Fitzgerald, got in a little bit of trouble when he said at the time that this would have Lincoln rolling in his grave. Uh, but I think it was an apt analogy to use because it's, it's sho- it's shocking behavior for any public servant. It's interesting. You um, you said at the beginning that you didn't imagine this is what we'd be talking about when we we arranged this. I honestly thought we'd be talking about Roger Stone's pardon. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the concern and the concerns I still have. I mean, uh, this this may seem uh, odd to say, but the fact of the matter is, uh, and this may still be part of. A, a cynical strategy by President Trump to, in some bizarre manner, justify uh, pardoning or uh, addressing Gen- General Flynn, uh, Roger Stone, Rudy Giuliani's future problems. We saw during the Russian investigation that the White House openly dangled pardons and I think used them in a, an illegal and inappropriate way to get people to change what they were going to do. Um, I think people knew he, he'd use references that, that sounded like sort of mob-esque things to say that when someone spoke out against the president, they were a rat. And he, he commended those who said they wouldn't talk about this like, like Roger Stone. So I actually thought that's what we'll be, we would be talking about, but I think it's possible that this is prelude to just that, that in the most cynical manner possible, he's going after the prosecutorial process overall, and that's what this is all about, or in some way demonstrating that Democrats are as bad as Republicans. You know, it's hard to get in his mind. Uh, If you think, I think, in a dark manner, in a cynical manner, it, it helps you begin to understand what he's trying to do. Uh, perhaps this is just the first step in this part of what he's doing. Well, you know, he mentioned today, uh, Trump used the term, the word Fitzpatrick, but he was referring to Pat Fitzgerald, my former boss. Uh, and I don't think it's a coincidence that, uh, you know, Pat Fitzgerald prosecuted Scooter Libby, uh, Conrad Black, and uh, Rod Vigoyevich, and all of those men have gotten a pardon or commutation. I also don't think it's a coincidence that Trump goes out of his way to intervene for people who are friends or associates of his. I mean, Bogoyevich was somebody who was on his TV show 
uh, his you know his wife had hired Trump associates and had been on Fox News pleading uh, to get him out of prison. And uh, you know Roger Stone is obviously his friend. Uh, I don't I don't think there's a disconnect there. You know really, you know there's 174,000 federal inmates. Uh, there's thousands of pardon and clemency petitions pending, and the people he's deciding to help are people who have some sort of connection to him or are were prosecuted by his perceived enemies. No, and you saw that at the very beginning of the Trump presidency. Uh, who's the first prominent entity person that, that was, was pardoned? It was the sheriff, right, in uh, Arizona, uh, because he, he agreed with his uh, bombastic, political philosophies and what he was trying to do. So um, uh, it's no surprise, and it's, it's part of a pattern of behavior and one to be concerned about. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm more concerned about what happened with Stone. I think you're right uh, that Roger, our pardon for Roger Stone is, is almost certainly in the cards. But what happened uh, was more concerning to me. If Trump had come out and pardoned Stone, uh, I would be disappointed. I would you know, certainly condemn it. Uh, but I would understand uh, that that is at least within presidential power. You know, what happened with, with Barr is very concerning because you had prosecutors recommending a sentence uh, of imprisonment uh, in accordance with DOJ policy that they recommend a sentence within the sentencing guidelines. And then literally a day later, uh, the Justice Department says that that sentence is wrong, that they recommended the the day before was wrong. I'll tell you, as a a prosecutor and defense attorney, I've never seen anything like that before. Uh, As a decade as a prosecutor and now as a defense attorney, I'm sure that never happened to you as a defense attorney. No, 10 years as a full-time criminal defense attorney and 18 overall, I never in my life heard of a situation in which clearly a career prosecutor had been ordered to withdraw a sentencing memorandum that that was within the guidelines range, right? I mean, I don't know what might have happened internally, but this was something that was out there, it was public, it was within the rules, it was within the guidelines. But it, again, it is a, it, someone told me that I should take this personally. Now, as you recall, the, the federal trial for Roger Stone began with an honor audio played to the jury in New York. And that audio was uh, was me questioning Roger Stone as part of the Russian investigation. Well, um, you know, in my, in my mind, when he was testifying, he lacked any credibility. Uh, and afterwards, um, someone said, you know, how did you handle that? And I said, I, I, I gave him every opportunity to perjure himself. Uh, obviously, he did. It's extremely dangerous when someone can tamper with witnesses as he did, um, and someone can lie to Congress about something so important, right? He, he lied about his uh, being a conduit of communication with with Wiki, and his, you know, in Florida during the campaign, he was bragging about his connections with Julian Assange, and all of a sudden, it's not so much. So it is the magnitude of the crime, and to me, more importantly, what he was lying about. And now for the administration, because they were personally involved, it's not just a friend of theirs, that they were personally involved um, with the same 
I think interference with the election, their communication with with the Russians, they're protecting themselves. Clearly, they're uh, they're above the they're above the law, and the the damages that they're completing to the rule of law are going to be a long time healing. Well, uh, you know, I it, it's probably going to come as no surprise to our listeners that I was one of the former federal prosecutors that spearheaded that effort uh, that, 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 you know, thousands of us signed a letter uh, calling for Barr to resign. I will say that a lot of uh, folks that I speak to are a little disheartened right now. They feel like there's no, um, you know, there's no check on the president at all. They feel like there's no way in which Trump uh, can be limited or stopped from in you know, damaging institutions. I know many DOG alumni that I've spoken with are very concerned about that, you know, that department's uh, image being tarnished forever and trust in the process being tarnished forever. You know, what, what hope can you give our listeners that Congress is going to be able to do something to check this president? I think I would extend that concern to an even greater magnitude. Uh, I serve on the House Select Committee on Intelligence. I would add everything you just said as to the integrity and the independence of the justice system as a whole, coupled with the fact that they're plugging judges in who are you know, grossly incompetent, and they're going to be there a long time. Add to that, uh, think of the same assault taking place within the intelligence community, right? The intelligence community in January of 2017 came out with near certain findings and it's so rare that they they all 17 agree and with a high degree of certainty they all came out with a finding that the russians uh, were responsible for the attack on the election and the democratic process and that uh, they attacked to help one candidate candidate trump and to hurt another candidate hillary clinton and since that time the president has done nothing but undermine its abilities, its integrities, its independence. There are any number of times that one could point out in which he's done just that. He agrees with the community when when he wants to and sets aside um, their advice uh, or, or says that the, something dark about them when he doesn't. This is dangerous stuff. The president of the United States needs to hear things he doesn't know or uh, he doesn't want to hear. So all the things that are happening within the justice system are also happening with others, including the, the, the uh, community I know so well serving on the Intel Committee. So I'll say this to, to respond to the concerns. Most policy issues like this, most policy problems like this have political solutions. Uh, I think all of us knew during the Russian investigation and during the uh, impeachment investigation, again, my committee was responsible for, for both, that uh, we were running into the Senate and uh, the, the Senate wasn't going to act. There wasn't going to be Howard Baker's or Barry Goldwater's beyond maybe one, and that's exactly what took place. So... I, what I would tell the public is that uh, the investigations won't stop on this and others. Um, the efforts involved with the Russian investigation involving Deutsche Bank and money laundering continue. The, the 
justice system, the court cases that are out there, the subpoenas that are out there, you know, that information will continue to come forward as it has with Parnas and Rudy and books and whatever it takes and congressional investigation. But between now and November, don't expect another impeachment. Obviously, uh, I think what you could expect is that we treat the Senate isn't the jury, it's the American people. And the American people are going to continue to learn about this president doing that. I don't know that we can get past the partisan barriers. That, that is as concerning as any of this. The president is a symptom, but the fact that the, that the Republicans won't get out of the partisan lanes or the silos that we live in to do the right thing, to put country over party, but doing the right thing uh, over uh, serving the president of the United States, it's just protecting the power that they have with the, being in control of the White House. It's going to be up to the voters. It doesn't mean Congress doesn't have a role between now and November, <clears throat> and I think much bigger after November, but I think that role is to educate and inform the American people. Uh, I, I will tell them that my committee on the Democratic side is doing that and working on that on an everyday basis. Well, you know, I think there's been some divide. Uh, I see there's been a lot of focus lately on, I'll call them kitchen table issues, but, you know, things that are the things that drive people in an election year, right? Because it is an election year. Uh, You know, I'm starting to see Democrats focusing on, you know, health care and other issues that the voters care a lot about. And yet I obviously a lot of our listeners are very concerned about these issues there. They, you know, they want Barr to be investigated. They want Barr to be held in, in account. They will, you know, want there to be some action on federal spending on certain items. You know, how do you balance those things? In other words, the checking the executive yeah, versus sure. those kitchen table issues. No, it's uh, I will say this. We can do more than one thing at a time. Right. Um my work on the House Select Committee on Intelligence investigating the, this administration uh, continued while my work on the Appropriations Committee funded the government. We got those bills passed. And indeed, the House, the Democrats in the House are passing bills two or three a week. Um, and of course, they, they go over to the Senate where Mitch McConnell calls it the graveyard or something, some sort. So I think we can do those things. I think we won the House back on the issues you talked about. We won the House back primarily through the middle uh, and through issues like health care. Right? I, I think the president lost many voters, I would say principally suburban uh, independent swing voters. Uh, they say a lot of suburban uh, women voters, and I think that will continue. To give folks some sense of optimism, let's remember something that all elections get won in the middle by a very narrow number. I mean, there haven't been many presidential elections that were landslides. Um, so it's four or five percent during the Trump Clinton campaign. The president won the Electoral College despite losing the popular vote in three states Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan by a total number in all three states of people that would fit in the soldier field. So, uh, again, educating, informing, engaging those people as to all these issues and pick an issue 
from climate change to the rule of law uh, to health care. Um, and, and I do think, despite what the president said during the State of the Union, that, that the blue-collar middle class that he was referencing should swing from him. Right? For During the State of the Union, he said he wasn't going to touch Medicare or Social Security, and he said that a couple times. But he's also simultaneously said that because of debts and deficit, he's going to have to. Uh, and I would argue this is largely due to the fact that they passed a tax plan that helps 1% of the American people. And as a result, they, they're now at about a $1.9 trillion number that they're going to add to that debt. A remarkably irresponsible act by the president. So uh, Congress is going to continue to do its role, uh, its oversight function. And we're going to educate and inform the American people. We're going to move forward on legislation that would cure this. Uh, as we say, we don't, we're not sure the Constitution was prepared for this president, but uh, we're going to change that. At the same time, uh, we move forward with the election process, and uh, I'm optimistic. Well, you know, it, one thing that I um, that I um, have been seeing it's it's interesting now that we're gearing into an election se- season. It seems like Trump is unleashed. I mean, he. He it's he's figured out that nothing can happen to him. He's untouchable in the Senate. Uh, it's it's almost given him a confidence to do more. I mean, even when Barr was trying to tell him, "Hey, don't telegraph what we're doing. Uh, don't don't tweet out, uh, you know, uh, you know, praise for my actions." Um, Trump is nonetheless uh, kind of going forward and doing whatever he wants. Uh, how, do you think that that's going to potentially be playing a role going forward in the election? Well, it's certainly something else the American people should take into consideration what kind of man is serving them. Uh, clearly, he was emboldened. And the first response was uh, to retaliate against those he perceived as uh, speaking out against him, right? Uh, American war hero, Colonel Vindman, one of our best ambassadors uh, from of Ukraine, uh, who was, you know, summarily taken out of place, as Rudy said, because she was in the way of the scheme. So I think that you're going to see that vindic- that uh, revenge path move forward. Um, he said in the first campaign that he's so popular that he thinks he could shoot somebody and get away with it. I'm starting to think that within the core of his base, he wasn't exaggerating. Uh, so you know, what number is that? A third of the American people uh, at its core or or more disheartening. But, uh, you know, for us, it's not a question of being able to accept that or, or to be discouraged. There's no time to be discouraged. There's no time to, to say all, all is lost. This is exactly when people, particularly those who have never been involved politically uh, or involved with uh, their government, this would be the time to engage from a political point of view and a rule of law in our Constitution. This is the day after Pearl Harbor, right? It's time to, to, to be part of the service. It's time to enroll, to engage. Uh, however small people might think that that role is, it's, it's not. This is a question of fighting for who we are as a country and the rule of law. Uh, I'm out of the country right now uh, working with our allies and met with uh, 
Prime Minister of Japan yesterday and meeting with <clears throat> our counterparts in the Diet here. And you know, this is what we're talking about. Can the rest of the American, can the can the new world order, I guess I would put it, created after the Second World War, survive this president? Can our standing in the world survive this president? And that will have profound impacts on our economy moving forward, on our ability to protect ourselves moving forward, and who we are as a as that beacon in in the, the world's uh, countries. So uh, I tell you right now, they don't trust us. We're not nearly as popular as we were, and uh, there's a lot of work to do. But we're here doing it, and I all I ask those who 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 talk about being discouraged, I get it, but there's, it is absolutely no time to give up. If anything, it's time to double down what you're doing or engage for the first time. Yeah. I think one thing I think people uh, are losing sight of is, you know, I, I've been hearing a lot from, from folks say, you know, they're, they're, Trump is unstoppable. can't be checked. There's no way to check his power. I mean, one thing I think people forget is that election that flipped the house had a very significant impact. I mean, now, Republicans cannot pass bills, cannot pass legislation uh, through both houses of Congress. They need House Democrats to do that or even get a budget passed. Uh, there, that requires some compromise to get things done. It means that, for example, you, you mentioned climate change earlier. You know, he can certainly they, there's regulations that can get weakened. Certainly enforcement can be um, watered down. But in terms of repealing laws, you know, now that the House is flipped, that can't happen. You know how the House can investigate. I mean, the reason that impeachment even happened was because the House uh, was able to move forward with an, an impeachment inquiry. That's something that wouldn't have happened. So, you know, th- the votes in the election did matter in 2018, uh, and really, it's going to matter. the The whole kit and caboodle is going to matter in 2020. And so, really, ultimately, this is going to come down to where the American people are. That's a great point, and I, and I would say that um, without flipping past the House, it's hard to imagine where we would be right now. Uh, you're right. They can't pass a, a budget. They can't fund the government, but they also have to do things they don't want to do. They have to f- – the first two years under this president when they controlled all three, the, the House, the Senate, and the White House, uh, it was scary, and it was getting worse in a hurry. Um, and they were passing legislation on a weekly basis to, to go in the opposite direction of trying to control gun violence or climate change or education equality. Uh, and we're still seeing some of those in place, but at least the bleeding stopped on passing legislation that was so horrible. And they can't, they don't have carte blanche on passing anything that they want, uh, a major concern. So uh, and I, I do believe it'll be hard for them to win back the House, the Republicans. Um, I think the Senate is up for grabs. I think it's going to be plus or minus one. And some of that's going to be a referendum on this president, of course, in some of those states. But um, I don't, if you're involved in Illinois politics, there's a lot to do locally. But uh, there's a lot that one could do in local Senate race uh, or two, uh, and also presidential. So uh, I think the two will go hand in hand. Um, But you're absolutely right. If we had not won back the House, then it would have been time for despair. And finally, on the same vein, it is true the president was emboldened. 
by the action by the Senate, which, while not a fair trial, uh, ended the way it it did. Um, but if he gets a second term, uh, it is hard to imagine what he might do. And uh, I guess if you could put it in the shortest phrase possible, it would be moving toward the most autocratic president in our nation's history. Yeah, I will say Trump really has taken aim at institutions that could check his power, institutions that traditionally have been a kind of the neutral, honest brokers that ultimately constrain presidents and everyone who empower in the United States. For example, the courts. I mean, we saw today Trump tweeting and, you know, and criticizing judges. He's done that. We criticized Judge Jackson, of course, earlier this week, and he's been doing that throughout his presidency, criticizes law enforcement. He criticizes the media, calling them the enemy of the people. Uh, you know, all these institutions he's trying to weaken. Uh, and that's having, I think, a, a prof- uh, going to have a long-term impact on our country. And you, you mentioned uh, autocratic. Essentially what it's doing is it's, it's creating a cult of personality, and it's, it's, it's strengthening the executive at the expense of these other potential uh, checks in our society. And also the United States Senate their extraordinary inactivity, their extraordinary uh, desire to, to let the president have whatever authority he wants. The, the impact on that body and how it acts is, is profound. But I'll take it one step further. You know, uh, from his campaign, he attacked liberal democratic institutions internationally. His talking points were remarkably similar to, wait for it, President Putin. Right, attacking uh, the United Nations, NATO, the EU, supporting Brexit, um, you know, an, an isolated country in an isolated world, and uh, it's having an effect. Uh, I don't know that any country in NATO would trust the United Nations to be there uh, if they were if we were needed, and I think it make as a result it makes us less safe. The world is changing around us. And we, we've got this one opportunity to make sure it doesn't continue uh, in this path. So uh, after Trump was acquitted and there was a lot of um, concern amongst many people about where the country was headed, you know, what I what the message that I sent uh, to my followers on Twitter and I've tried to say in every speech I've given since then uh, is that if you're really upset about what's going on in this country, you need to get off your ass and do something about it. You need to organize, canvas, donate, vote. You know, a lot, a lot of people told me, look, I'm in a blue state. I'm in a, an area or in a district where uh, there's no election for me to work on here. What, what would you tell them? What, what do you think people can do or should be doing in the months ahead to get involved? You know, uh, first, when this president was elected and I would speak to groups, I felt like it was some sort of uh, – counselor (laughs) giving therapy to folks who were discouraged and they should have been my first bit of advice is this sounds corny but you know now's the time for that kind of thinking i think you take care of each other Uh, you need to start from the ground up presenting an atmosphere uh that's the opposite of what this president does so however anyone wants to be engaged on a daily basis in a charity, uh, in their place of worship, in education, uh, please do that because I do think it, it gives hope, makes others feel better, and makes the world a better place. But to your point, I think you may be in a blue state, 
uh, the representatives that helped us win back the House uh, in Illinois, Caston and Underwood, they're going to be facing tough challenges real close to embedded in your areas that your listeners are. Um, but there's also be other congressional races here in nearby Wisconsin and Michigan. Uh, the presidential race will matter. There'll be also other congressional Senate races there. They're going to be extremely important. Uh, but, you know, shoe leather, writing checks, and go beyond. We need a lot of people to uh, who, who will walk and talk. We also need people, and anybody can do this, can uh, recruit others, train them, educate them, motivate them, and get them involved. So we need, uh, we need foot soldiers, and we need people to train themselves to be sergeants, lieutenants, and more. Um, again, if you've, if you've never done it before, let this be the one time. Uh, the best advice of trying to explain how campaigns work or getting people to do it, it's very much the uh, Mark Twain uh, great writings, uh, painting that white picket fence, right? Tom Sawyer convincing people just how much fun it is to paint that white picket fence. That's kind of the same training that campaigns can be. It's not always fun to go door to door and have people slam doors on you, I guess, or, but if you can get more people involved where they're involved with registration and the fights we have in Wisconsin for that critical suppression news, engaging people to get out there and vote and helping them understand why it matters. You know, we're all uh, very involved in this and get it, but the majority of voters, unfortunately, have a very superficial understanding of the process and what's taking place. Everybody listening to this can be part of that process. Well, I think that's a good a good place to leave it. That's great advice for our listeners, and I appreciate you coming on, Congressman. Thank you so much. Anytime. Take care now. So now let's bring in our next guest, Barb McQuaid. Barb McQuaid was the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, which includes Detroit uh, and that entire metro area. And now she is an MSNBC legal analyst. Many of you have seen her on MSNBC many times. And she's somebody who frequently talks about the threat to the rule of law. She was one of the signatories to that letter, uh, along with me and many others uh, of former federal prosecutors and other former DOJ officials who are calling on Bill Barr to resign. Welcome back, Barb. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, Renato. Glad to be with you. Well, I, I wish we were recording this under better circumstances. I can't imagine you're any more excited than I am about uh, some of the news today. I will say as somebody who uh, was at the U.S. Attorney's Office here during the uh, Blagojevich uh, investigation and in prosecution uh, and watched those trials, uh, I was uh, disappointed uh, to see that this action was taken, not because I don't I think that you know shorter sentences often can be uh, an appropriate thing uh, for 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 uh, people who are incarcerated, but you know the process here uh, seemed to be sending a message uh, that was not a good one. Yeah, I think if you look at the whole package of pardons that came today, in addition to uh, former Governor Rod Blagojevich, we also saw Michael Milken, who was the the junk bond trader. Um, we also saw Eddie B. Bartolo, the f- former owner of the San Francisco 49ers, former New York Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick. All of these things were fraud, corruption, tax cases, white collar. And in some ways, it has the feeling 
of a person whose worldview is that these are not serious crimes. Uh, President Trump said that these sentences were excessive and too long, and um, that there even might be sort of a grooming effect to try to condition or desensitize the public about the seriousness of these kinds of crimes. In my view, these kinds of crimes are the most serious of all because they are about greed and abuse of public trust. Um, And, you know, I think when I think about why we even have the criminal justice system, it is to protect vulnerable people from those who are powerful, whether it's powerful in committing violent crimes or exercising political power or financial heft. Um, The laws are there to even out that imbalance between the powerful and the vulnerable. And by pardoning and commuting sentences of these powerful individuals, I think President Trump has uh, sent a message about the way the public ought to see these kinds of crimes. Yeah, I think exactly right. And it seems to me, look, there's 170-something thousand federal inmates. The reason that he's choosing these individuals is because he knows them or they have some influence or, uh, you know, these are the sort of connected people that can get access to him. And they're not necessarily the most deserving people. There's thousands of, you know, pardon and commutation positions that he could be looking at. I think it, it, it dovetails with what I originally wanted to talk to you about, which was, you know, some of the interventions that we've seen regarding the rule of law, like the the Roger Stone case, where you have, you know, I'm all for, uh, you know, taking a long look at a below guidelines recommendation or lower uh, sentence, uh, recommend, recommending lower sentences, but it shouldn't be based on who has access or who's the president's friend. Yeah, exactly. I, I think these two stories actually go very much together. Uh, the the pardons that he's given, um, along with uh, what we've seen this week in the Roger Stone case. People who have access to President Trump, people who are on his radar screen because they are prominent in some way or he knows them personally, are getting this treatment. And it really undermines the idea that we're a nation of laws and, and not of, of people. That we, it doesn't matter who's on the other end of uh, the V in a case, United States versus someone, they're going to be judged by the same standard of uniformity. And, you know, there are human beings involved in the process. So the uniformity may not always be perfect, but you should at least strive for that kind of uniformity so that the famous are being dealt with the same way as people who are not so famous and well-known. And um, I, I think that, uh, you know, you talk about drain the swamp. This really smacks of, of swamp creatures. Who gets this kind of special benefit and gets out of jail early? Those with access to the president, those who uh, are, are in the know, who are powerful and who are wealthy. And I think that um, harms public confidence in the rule of law and the fair administration of justice. Yeah, I will say, you know, the 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 of these individuals, the one I know best is uh, former Governor Blagojevich, and it very much fits into that image that you just talked about. I mean, you know, his entire trial was about the access people had to him and, uh, you know, shaking down a children's hospital, for example, to get money. And, and, uh, and, you know, he was somebody when I, I interacted with him during the trial. I mean, he was, he was out there shaking hands and glad handing with people while he was in the middle of criminal trials, you know, lived like uh, president Trump in an alternate universe where he was going on television and giving interviews and, appearing on TV shows and saw himself as totally innocent and at times as critical of the judge, um, you know, very much Trump-like in a certain respect, living in an alternative reality. Uh, And, you know, that is essentially what, to me, is getting rewarded uh, by uh, Trump today. 
Yeah, in fact, wasn't Rod Blagojevich a contestant on The Apprentice during the time? He was. Donald Trump was uh, had that show. Yeah, so I, I don't know if there's any connection there. I don't know enough about the show to know it. But um, what a world, huh, that, uh, that that's what it takes to get um, an exoneration. It's, um, it's interesting, as you said, of all the people who are there with uh, pardon applications in, there's an Office of Pardon Attorney, people file applications all the time. And the basis usually is just the opposite of the way you explain Rod Blagojevich, and that is um, looking at a person's application is supposed to be for things like um, a request for mercy, that they have admitted their involvement in a crime and they have expressed remorse and they've learned their lesson. Um, and we can be confident that they're going to go out now and be a productive citizen because they've paid their debt to society and further punishment is unnecessary. I think for someone like Brad Bogoyevich, who has not demonstrated any remorse, still doesn't believe he did anything wrong, the idea of giving him a pardon just seems so um, inappropriate for the kinds of factors that are supposed to be considered in giving pardons. Yeah, it's exactly right, Barb. And I, look, I worked on some pardon and commutation petitions. We you know, the local U.S. attorney's offices uh, do have a role in that a process if they played a, a part in that uh, prosecution. And the the typical person, at least seemed to me from what I saw, were people who were in prison for a long time, sometimes for drug offenses or other things. And like you said, they're asking for mercy, sort of ordinary people uh, who have, you know, are suffering uh, after a long uh, sentence in prison. And they, they, they think that they've served their debt to society already. Very different uh, from what we're seeing uh, today. Yeah, and um, you know, I, I too was involved in some of those commutation petitions, and you know, oftentimes it was someone who um, had uh, committed a serious crime. It, the other aspect is you are supposed to have served at least ten years of your sentence under some of the clemency programs, um, but that person had shown great rehabilitation. For example, they had obtained um, education while they were in prison. They were part of a prison education program where they themselves were helping with the teaching. They were involved in training programs, outreach, or um, mentoring young, younger inmates or other kinds of things. They gave you some confidence that they meant it when they said, I've really changed my ways, I've paid my debt to society, and I want to do something to contribute to the good of the world. And then you believe that that person could do more good on the outside than they could on the inside. Um, and that's something that I think we are seeing from Rod Blagojevich or some of these other defendants um, really much more that these were wealthy people who abused their positions of trust. They got caught, and um, now they're getting another break but because they are, have famous names and access to the president. Yeah, it's weird. And I, I will say that I, of, of the, the, all the recent news, I'm more troubled by the Roger Stone case of what happened there than with the pardons and commutations because the president does have broad power in that in, in terms of pardons and commutations. But what happened in the Roger Stone case to me was particularly unusual and concerning because it involved, you know, line prosecutors making a recommendation of a sentence within the guideline range in accordance with DOJ policy. And, you know, as you know, Barb, the policy is that if you want to go below the guidelines, you know, you that had, requires supervisory approval. You look at the facts and circumstances of the case. There, you know, one day later, there's suddenly the department has a different view as to the sentence. Uh, and Barr admitted it was essentially an intervention by senior by by senior people in the department. And it, it, it no one really believes that was based on the facts and circumstances of that case. It was essentially a person who's friendly with the president. 
Yeah, and you know there are cases that get sentenced all, all every day in this country where the prosecution files a sentencing memo and that's it. There's no uh, higher ups from Maine Justice who, after the fact, say, "Oh, I read that sentencing memo and I need you to change it." Um, in a high-profile case like this, that you probably handled some of these. Uh, there are a few where the local U.S. Attorney's Office will communicate with Maine Justice, and usually it's more of a heads up. There's a significant report requirement. In cases, I was always told, the Attorney General doesn't want to read about your case in the newspaper. And so if there's any chance that your case is significant enough that it's going to generate news coverage, you should give a heads up to the Attorney General as to what you're doing in that case. And so we would file significant reports with the DAG's office and say, this is what we're doing in advance. If for some reason they wanted to intervene at that stage, they had certainly the authority to do that. But once you file the document, you have spoken on behalf of the Justice Department. And the idea that they would come back after the fact and say, no, that's too high, I think gives the impression that what they were acting on was simply the displeasure of the president. He tweeted, he said it was um, very unfair, it was horrible, it was a miscarriage of justice. And after that tweet comes out, we see William Barr intervene and another AUSA at that office file the sentencing memo, both of which were under the name of the acting U.S. attorney, by the way, which is kind of a bizarre scenario. And so I think um, there may be some fault to lay at his feet for poor management in the case. Um, But then as the week played out, we saw William Barr give that interview where he said, um, the president's tweeting is make it it impossible for me to do my job. And I think what he meant there is it creates this appearance that it's the president who's intervening in these cases. And rather than stand down, the president tweets again just hours later and says, well, I didn't intervene in, in any case yet, but I have the absolute power to do so. So clearly not getting the message that there is this appearance that the president is improperly intervening in cases. Does he have the constitutional authority to do so? Yes, but not corruptly. He also has the duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And that means that we exercise the rule of law. That means that people are all treated fairly and you try to treat them with uniformity. And one of the best ways to do that is to adhere to the federal sentencing guidelines, which has a whole calculation system based on the offense conduct for determining what someone's sentence ought to be. To come in after the fact and say, I think it's too high in this case for his friend involving crimes relating to his campaign has to cause a, a, a big hit in the public's confidence in the fair administration of justice. Yeah, I have no problem with the president having as a policy matter a view that the guidelines are too high and saying, OK, as, as a policy matter, I think we should be deviating downward from the guidelines in X type of case or Y type of case or based on these type of circumstances and having an administration with that policy. But I don't think anyone really believes that, you know, that that was what was happening here, that, you know, I don't think, you know, some there aren't drug dealers and bank robbers and other types of t- what tax evaders and others who, you know, just random people throughout this country are getting the benefit of this. This is just somebody because he's the president's friend. And I, that's really what concerns me the most about it. Yep. Agreed. Now, it's um, it's definitely um, causing, I think, a crisis of confidence. And then um, to undermine those four career prosecutors the way they did. Four career prosecutors filed this memo, put their names on it, says this is the position of the Department of Justice. We think these guidelines are appropriate here. We think that this is a serious case because we have seven counts of lying and obstructing Congress and witness tampering. We have an actual threat of death. We have um, actual interference with Congress's ability to find out the facts. They 
missed out on certain witnesses and documents because of the actions of Roger Stone, resulting in that guidelines range. Um, and then uh, the next day, the, a document is filed that's saying this is excessive and unwarranted. So I applaud them for their bold move of withdrawing from the case and in one instance actually resigning from the Department of Justice. And so that's why I, I signed that letter asking for the resignation of William Barr. I, I, I don't expect him to resign as a result, but I did want to stand in solidarity with those four prosecutors for taking what I thought was a very brave step, but it sends a message to the public that they didn't think this was okay. Yeah, and I also signed the letter uh, for similar reasons. I, I'm really concerned about uh, the image of the department going forward. I, I was always taught that it was very important that the that the department was acting in accordance with the, its policies and was acting in an even-handed way and was not uh, having political favoritism or any other kind of favoritism towards particular defendants. Uh, this seems to me to have sent the exact opposite message and really undermines confidence in the department going forward. Yeah, I agree with you. And it, it's very concerning. Like you, I spent a good chunk of my career at the de Department of Justice. I care very deeply about it. It's an institution I revere. And I think it's very important that it be not only that it do justice, but that it be seen as doing justice, that there be a perception of justice. I know that William Barr, um, in an interview early in his tenure as attorney general, said words to the effect of, I'm not really worried about my legacy or my reputation um, because everybody dies. Remember that? You know, I'm not looking for anyone to have a Homeric ode to, to me and my legacy. Well, um, maybe so, but I think he does have a duty as the attorney general to worry about the reputation of the Department of Justice. And even if he doesn't care because he's going to die, I hope that the Department of Justice will live on well past the rest of us. And if it's going to, he does need to take care that its reputation remain intact. And that takes some work. You can't just uh, run around and do things on a whim like this. You have to think thoughtfully about the actions of the institution and, and how it will be perceived by the public. And I think he's, he's failing miserably in that regard. Indeed. And I, what, speaking of how this will be perceived by the public, I, 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 this puts Judge Jackson, I think, in a very difficult position. She's going forward with the sentencing on the 20th uh, coming up. Uh, it seems to me that she would have likely given uh, Mr. Stone a below-guideline sentence anyway. Uh, she often sentences below the guidelines. I think she gave, you know, uh, sentences that were, um, you know, which she, you know, considered a whole variety of factors and, you know, gave, I'd say, sentences that, that were lower than some expected, for example, to Paul Manafort. I, I could see her doing the same thing here, but I'm sure she would want to send the message that that is not due to any any anything uh, that's necessarily uh, unusual coming out of the Justice Department. Yeah, she's in a little bit of a bad spot, right? Because if she does want to exercise leniency, it might look like she went along with this uh, gamesmanship by the Justice Department. Or if she imposes uh, a guideline sentence or higher, maybe it looks like she is sticking it to Trump. Uh, how dare you try to intimidate me in this way? I'll show you what I'm going to do. Um, and so she's sort of in that damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. Uh, and Janet Reno, the former attorney general, was famous for saying, well, I, I am damned if I do or damned if I don't, so I might as well just do the right thing. And I imagine that Amy Berman Jackson will view the situation in the same way. Um, I, I appreciate that the chief judge of that court, Judge Burl Howell, sent out a statement last week, which is very unusual, um, clearly in response to President Trump's attacks on Judge Jackson, saying that our, you know, our judiciary is independent, 
We decide cases based on facts and law and nothing else. We tune out all this drama. That is not something we're concerned with, and we decide cases that way. Uh, today, there was this meeting of the Federal Judges Association. I don't know exactly what they talked about, but I imagine it's the same kind of thing, which is we will not be cowed by these kinds of attacks. We can't be distracted by them either, um, and we have to continue to uh, keep our eye on the ball, what happens in our courtroom, what gets filed in the briefs before us, and make our decisions based on that and tune out all of that noise because our country does depend on the independence of the judiciary. And I think so far it is the judiciary that has acquitted itself quite well in um, all of the attacks that we've seen on our constitutional norms. Um, I think Congress has uh, not necessarily held up its institutional role in the bargain, um, but with the, the members of the Senate and the way they handled the impeachment trial. But I think to date we have seen a strong showing from uh, our judiciary and um, I'm counting on them to continue to, to hold firm. The president clearly wants to undermine the reputation of the judiciary by referring to people as Obama judges and attacking individual judges. And they just need to stand strong, tune that out and do their work. And um, I, I think that they will remain in good stead. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, Trump obviously was tweeting at Judge Jackson. He also tweeted at today at that a judges association uh, saying what he thought they should be focused on Pfizer or, or something of that nature. <laughs> um, you know, one of our listeners was asking, what could Judge Jackson do about this? Could she do something to, to President Trump? The answer is not really, uh, at least. And I'm sure you would agree with that. Right, Barb? I mean, she's not going to do anything directly to the president. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think if, if she wanted to, I think she could exercise her supervisory powers. I know there was a phone conference scheduled for today. Didn't see what happened there, but where that could be an opportunity to uh, call the lawyers in. You could call in the U.S. attorney, for example, Timothy Shea, and say, you filed a brief with one position on Monday and you filed another on Tuesday. What was that all about? But I, I think that she might tend to avoid that only because it, it tends to bring herself into that fray. And I think she'd rather stay beyond it. She's got the representations of the parties. They're just recommendations. And she's got all the information she needs. And she, she'll, she'll have a hearing. She'll hear from the parties. And she has all the information she needs to make her own decision. And I think that's what she'll do. I, I think that I would try to probably stay uh, above the fray in all of this. I would do the same thing. If I was her, I would... Uh, and, and I and just and I and I did track what happened today, and she did, you know, from what I saw, she didn't say much of anything. I think that's the right approach. And frankly, when pronouncing the sentence, she may say, you know, I didn't give much weight to the sentencing recommendations here. I whatever I was looking at, it. you know, I certainly considered them, but I was focused on this particular factor and the statutory factor, or something like that, uh, when she pronounces her sentence, just to send the message that her focus is on. The, the factors that are prescribed by law and and the facts and circumstances of this case, and she's just doing her job, that sort of thing. Yeah, yep. One of our our listeners, uh, John Renault, asked about uh, her decision today not to postpone sentencing. In other words, Stone has made this motion for a new trial, and what the judge said today was uh, she's going to consider that. You could file it under seal. The government's going to respond. She's going to consider that, but she's sentencing him on the 20th anyway. Uh, what does that tell you about uh, the motion, if anything? Oh, I think um, it says to me that it seems highly unlikely that she's going to grant that motion for new trial, right? If she had any serious doubt about it and that he was going to be acquitted, ultimately, she wouldn't want to have uh, a sentencing there. So it says to me that uh, 
she finds it unlikely that that's going to prevail. Exactly right. I, I had the same same view. It's always like if you're if you you file a motion to dismiss or something like that, and the judge is like, let's go forward with discovery. In the meantime, you know you're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So as a as a litigator, I'm often in that situation. Of, I'm reading kind of where the judge goes. It's a pretty clear signal. I, I'll just say, you know, the legal standard here. There's been a lot of discussion of this juror, and the Trump tweeted about the juror. You know, from what I saw of the questioning. There, you know, Stone doesn't really have a strong case based on what, what the questioning was because his attorneys questioned the witness and she did reveal quite a bit and they didn't uh, strike her for whatever reason. Um, you know, unless she like lied in the questionnaire or something that we don't know publicly, it's pretty hard to see how they're going to get uh, a new trial on that basis. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it might be useful for listeners to understand um, what is and is not required of jurors. If you're asked questions, you have to tell the truth about them. But nobody expects that everybody who comes in is going to be um, completely free of of any opinion in the world whatsoever. The only question is, you may even have heard a little bit about the case that you're going to decide. Uh, It's rare that you find people who've heard nothing about cases that are very prominent. Um, But the question is, can you set aside uh, anything you might have heard about this case? Can you set aside any other opinions that you might have and decide this case based on the facts and the law as we give it to you in the court? And if the parties and the judge are satisfied that that's, that's the case, then there's not a problem. Even if it turns out after the fact that you find out that somebody ran for Congress as a Democrat or as a Republican and therefore uh, perhaps uh, is biased against somebody because he worked for, on a Republican or you know, opposite party campaign. That's just not enough. Uh, the fact that somebody might vote in a certain way, um, that is just not enough to prove that they were biased in this case. Jurors take an oath to do their duty impartially, and we uh, give that the benefit of the doubt. There's a presumption of regularity there. Uh, you would have to find something like, you know, I'm an operative and I went in with a goal of sticking it to Roger Stone. Um, and so I, I lied on the questionnaire so he wouldn't find out about uh, my past as an organizer against Roger Stone or uh, in, in some other way. Um, it, it seems, based on what we know so far, that there has not been any finding like that. And so, uh, like you, I'd be surprised if the, the uh, motion for new trial is granted on that basis. Right. And I'll just say, as somebody who's done voir dire as both the prosecutor, federal prosecutor and as a defense attorney in federal cases, you know, it's ultimately on the attorney to ask those questions and get that information. If they don't do that, it, as long as the witness isn't, or excuse me, the witness, the juror is not lying, uh, then, you know, it is, it's on them to, to, to find out what they're going to find out and, and exercise their strikes appropriately. Um, w- you know, a lot of questions and comments and sort of a final topic, at Barb, is there's been a lot of questions and comments from our listeners. They want to impeach Barr. They want Congress to do something about Barr. You know, I don't really uh, I didn't get a sense from Congressman Quigley that 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 was something the House was, was looking to do. You know, it, it, what, what do you what, what would you tell listeners about how what can be done um, when, you know, the, the attorney general is, is engaging in questionable you know, behavior, doing things that we're all very concerned about? Well, you know, impeachment is an option for cabinet officials and judges just the same way it is for the president. But um, I, I think based on what we've seen from. Uh, the Senate, the the chances of there being an impeachment are are next to zero. So I don't think that's fruitful. Another option is for the president to fire the attorney general. But again, I don't think that's an option here because I think that uh, the president is likely quite happy with all of the things that William Barr is doing. And so I think that if there's an attorney general that you think is is not doing the job, one way to to address that issue is at the ballot box for 
uh, voters to say that this administration has a justice department that we think is acting uh, contrary to law. And so we're going to vote this administration out of office. I think that is one way. There's certainly Barr discipline. I know there have been uh, talk of uh, reporting William Barr to the New York Bar um, for ethics violations to disbar him. Um, I don't know if that's enough to stop him. He doesn't sign the briefs. uh, So I don't know if that's enough to stop him from serving as attorney general. He doesn't tend to appear in court. So um, it seems to me that's about all you've got in terms of of redress. I don't know. What do you think? Do you have other ideas? Yeah, I will say I, I'm not, I don't really see the bar, uh, a, a disciplinary measures going very far. I mean, the, the state bars have, they're focused often on things like clients, uh, fun, client funds that have been stolen and very egregious cases of lawyer misconduct. I mean, certainly I don't want to diminish anything from the serious misconduct, uh, that, you know, that bar has done in terms of misleading the public and, you know, interfering in the in intervening in the stone sentencing and others, but I just don't see it as the sort of thing that bars are really you know bar associations will will really go f- far enough down the road on, or, and even if they do, whether like you said, whether it'll influence bar. To me, you know, listeners and voters really need to focus on the election and moving the ball there. I really think that's where the energy is best spent, and I've really felt that way for quite some time. I think certainly, you know, there was an impeachment. It could have an impact. Yes, Barr could be impeached, but ultimately, as you point out, Barb, you know, it's hard to see the Senate removing any of Trump's people from office. Barr has a lot of confidence from Republicans because he's doing Trump's bidding. He's moving forward his agenda. Uh, and to me, uh, the energy is better spent on figuring out how to win in November. Yeah, I think that's probably right and probably the most effective strategy for um, seeing William Barr leave office. Um, you know, you and I signed this letter asking him to resign. Um, I, I don't think he will. But, you know, if he really cares about the rule of law, I, I know some people see him as uh, Donald Trump's henchman. Um, I, I think my own take on him is that he is someone who has this very extreme view of the unitary executive and that he sees his role as protecting um, that uh, authority of the president, no matter what he thinks of the current occupant of the office. uh, And that's his job. But um, I think that if that is the case, uh, now that, as he even said, President Trump's tweets make it impossible for him to do his job and have created this impression that President Trump is using the Justice Department uh, as a lever to achieve his own political goals. I think William Barr could best achieve uh, justice and best serve the interests of justice by resigning, because that would send a message. Look, I'm your biggest ally, President Trump, and even I think it's appropriate to resign because I don't like the way you're running the Justice Department. That would speak volumes and I think could uh, serve justice in a way much stronger than anything he could do in office. And so uh, if he really cares about this country and the rule of law, I call on him to, to resign out of a sense of duty, not out of a sense of shame. Yeah, I will tell you, I, I, I certainly think he could serve the interests of justice by doing that. But unlike you, I don't have uh, as high of opinion of Mr. Barr, so I don't think he will. Uh, I don't, I don't, I, I'm, I don't, I'm more cynical perhaps about him, but I will say this. I, I will wholeheartedly um, agree with you that, um, resigning would be a good option. And in the meantime, uh, everyone's going to have to keep uh, focus on this election. So th- thank you very much, uh, Barb. Thank you for joining us. And I really appreciate it. You bet, Renato. Thanks very much.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 